Beloved congregation of the Lord, will you turn with me again to Jeremiah 30 and verse 17. Jeremiah 30 and verse 17. For I will restore health unto thee, and I will heal thee of thy wounds, saith the Lord. Because they called thee an outcast, saying, This is Zion, whom no man seeketh after. Well, there cannot be a greater contrast between how the world looks at the church and how God looks at the church. In our own nation and in many other parts of the world, people are occupied with important matters, or so they think. Issues of politics, issues of war and peace, economics, culture, and of course their own affairs of their family, their business, and so on. And so if people think about the church at all, it is perhaps with a certain condescension, a certain toleration at best, or even contempt or hatred at worst. Then people would live not for this world, but for the world to come. Not for their own desires, but for the desires of their Lord. It is something that they cannot conceive of, they cannot understand. And so it is that the church is seen as an unnecessary thing, just something that you can do or not do, be a part of or not be a part of, according to your subjective desires. And how different do we find the perspective of God throughout the scriptures? Here in the prophecy of Jeremiah, the prophet was tasked with interpreting history, interpreting events both present and future, according to the will and the word of God. He wanted his listeners and readers to think biblically, scripturally, according to divine truth. He spoke, did we not read in verse 1, as the Lord had commanded, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, it says. He did not add to it nor take away from it. And indeed, he wrote it all here in a book, speaking particularly of chapters 30 to 33 of this section. But really, the whole book is composed of these sacred writings And what do we find? That where God gives an accounting of events, it is the church that is at the very focus of everything. It is the church that is the apple of the Lord's eye, the very centerpiece of history from around which everything else revolves. For the worship of God, the salvation of God, the electing love of God, these things are revealed in the people of God. And when we contrast what the Lord says with what the world says about the church in this verse, the contrast could not be more stark. What is it that is said by the taunters, by the adversaries? The church here is called an outcast. 
This is Zion, whom no man seeketh after. No one desires the church, no one cares for the church, indeed an object of contempt and scorn. And yet the Lord has a very different word. Speaking of healing, restoration, words denoting salvation and blessing. These are things that I wish to open up, and with the Lord's help, I would ask you to um, follow me as we look through, especially this chapter, Jeremiah 30, and focusing on verse 17 in particular. But if you stay in this chapter with me, I'll be referring to a number of verses that we see here. Let's write over the sermon, this title, The Outcast Healed, The Outcast Healed. And we'll see Zion's need, second Zion's remedy, and third Zion's health. Zion's need, Zion's remedy, and Zion's health. What is the state of your life today? What are the things that you carry with you? that burden your heart and soul? What are the things that trouble you? Everyone has things that worry, things that afflict them. And maybe at particular seasons in life, it seems as though almost everything is going wrong and nothing is going right, of course. There are certainly always blessings that we can count and and thank the Lord for, no matter what condition we find ourselves, and yet we can also find ourselves in deep trouble and even peril. To be an outcast is to be cast away from the blessing and the presence of God. So, children, perhaps you think of Cain and Abel, and you know that those were two brothers, and descended from Adam and Eve. They had the truth and the word of God. And yet there was that terrible story in which Cain envied his brother for his sacrifice of praise was received of the Lord. And what happened? Well, Cain murdered his brother Abel and the Lord found out and confronted him about it. He said, who is my, who is, am I my brother's keeper? That was his excuse, basically. Who am I to care for my brother? Well, the Lord, he cast him away, put a mark upon him and separated him from his family, doomed to wander the earth. So it is with every one of us in some measure by nature. We have all broken covenant with God, broken his law and commandments, separated ourselves from his blessings separate ourselves from any right to happiness. And in particular ways, this word can come upon those who receive a particular judgment from the Lord in response to their sins. Indeed, we be careful and say that we don't trace every affliction in our lives to particular sins, against ourselves, and we recognize the exceptions, the book of Job, a righteous man suffering for a greater purpose. And yet, it is also the case that one can be separated from the Lord and judged by the Lord because of his sins. And so it is, that was how this 
titled Outcast, was ascribed to the people of God. You see, they had sinned against the Lord so many times, corrupting his worship, perverting justice, seeking their own ways rather than the ways of God. And so when their judgment was ripe, the Lord lifted his hand of restraint and removed them from the land of promise and brought them into captivity. First, the northern tribes into Assyria and then the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin into Babylon. And it was in viewing this, the peculiar judgment of God and the forsaking of his people in that visible expression of judgment upon the visible church of the Jews, that this name outcast was given to them. They have called thee an outcast, saying, This is Zion, whom no man seeketh after. And it seems to be this that we especially need to hear today, congregation. We live in days in which the true character of God's holiness and his absolute insistence that his people be holy and after his own heart is in danger of being forgotten. We want to accommodate a view of God that simply suits our own desires and our own what our own appetites, and yet it is not the God of Scripture. Look down at the close of this chapter there, um, beginning at verse 23. Behold, the whirlwind of the Lord goeth forth with fury, a continuing whirlwind. It shall fall with pain upon the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord shall not return until he have done it, and until he have performed the intents of his heart. In the latter days ye shall consider it. And so here you have the anger and the rage of God against sin, against all wickedness, and it's pictured as a terrible storm. I wonder if you've ever been in a terrible war, a terrible um, Storm, whether it's a thunderstorm or a lightning storm or maybe even a tornado or a hurricane. And, and when nature bears its fury upon us, we are utterly helpless. We're reminded how frail we are. Well, here we have not merely nature, but the author and the governor of all nature. And he governs all things, all of history, all of our lives according to his perfect plan and for his own purposes. We want to tame God. We want to domesticate God. We want to make him one who would simply serve our own wishes as a genie or an idol. But God will not be tamed. He will not be domesticated. He serves his own glory. And he will vindicate his own will. And he will reveal his own character. He will punish the wicked. This is the God with whom we have to do. There's no other God that I can speak to you of. A God of your own imagination. A Santa Claus who will just pat your head and say, All is well. He does not care about your sin and iniquity. There is no God like that. The God with whom we have to do is a holy and a righteous Lord. And so there's this 
terrible reality, the judgment of God upon sin and particularly upon his people. I think some of the most terrifying words about the Lord's judgment are found in this chapter. Listen to what is said there in verse uh, 5. For thus saith the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask ye now, and see whether a man doth travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins, as a woman in travail, and all faces are turned into paleness. I think about that describing grown men, strong men, acting like women about to give birth and in the pains of childbirth, clutching their abdomens. I think of what it is to be like a small child and you know what it is to be fearful and you, you see adults and they seem to have all their composure. They seem to have all their calm and yet maybe one day you see genuine fear and in the eyes of an older person and suddenly you know it is so serious. So it is describing the judgment of God here where the strongest and the bravest are cowering in terror. Verse 7, alas, for that day is great so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. For it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will break the yoke from off thy neck and I will burst thy bonds and strangers shall no more serve themselves of him. This time of Jacob's trouble, which is referred to, there's dispute about what it means, but it certainly means a time of judgment upon the people of God. Certainly what is in view is partially fulfilled in the days of the exile into Babylon, but we could see other fulfillments in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 and in judgments upon the church and people of God throughout history leading up even to the last days and the return of Christ. Times of judgment and peril. Yes, of salvation and of destruction of the enemies, but also great trial for all. We are saved out of them if we are the people of God. Judgment begins with the house of God, Peter says. But it is, as, as it were, by, as getting brands out of the fire, plucking us out of that terror and that trouble, that the Lord is pleased to redeem us. So it's a terrible thing to contemplate the judgment of God, that he is all-sovereign, all-powerful, and that our sins are greatly grievous unto him. And this prophecy, what is it calculated to do but to take you and me face to face with this holy God and to cause us to sit and consider this. Consider how it is that every misery and sorrow that exists may be traced in some way or another to sin. In some cases to the sin of our parents, Adam and Eve. In some cases to the sins of others sinning against us. But in not a few cases, we can surely see that we have added to our misery, spiritual misery, physical misery, because we have not followed in the Lord's ways. And so it is that 
the consequences of sin, and particularly as it comes to the judgment of God upon his people, it's pictured here as terrible sickness and disease. Listen to how it's described here, beginning there in verse 12. For thus saith the Lord, thy bruise is incurable, and thy wound is grievous. There is none to plead thy cause, that thou mayest be bound up. Thou hast no healing medicines. All thy lovers have forgotten thee. They seek thee not. For I have wounded thee with the wound of an enemy, with the chastisement of a cruel one, and for the multitude of thine iniquity, because thy sins were increased. Why criest thou for thine affliction? Thy sorrow is incurable for the multitude of thine iniquity, because thy sins were increased. I have done these things unto thee. It's incredible the lengths in which God will go to get the attention of sinners. Everything, if you would stop to think, relates in some way to God, relates in some way to his plan and his dealings with his people and with every one of us. There are lessons to be learned. And surely, especially in the ways of providence, when we live in a world in which God has given us consequences for our actions, consequences for how we live, for what we do and what we do not do, part of that is that we can trace the hand of God to see what he is seeking to teach us. Consider this church of the Jewish nation, deprived of the blessings of the land where they had been uh, deposited by God, deprived of all of that rich land flowing with milk and honey, deprived of the place of worship there in Mount Zion in Jerusalem, and cast away into captivity. Exactly as God had warned beforehand, exactly as God had said would happen, when his law and commandments were forsaken, when his people did not trust and believe in him, but rather sought lovers from the surrounding nations, their false gods, their political power, and so on. And even now, tempted to conceive of things according to a mere human reasoning, Surely if we'd done this differently or that differently, if we'd just played our cards a little bit better, this would not have happened. No, the Lord is saying, this comes from my hand. This comes from me. It is designed, if anything, to teach you that I am God and you are not, that sin is sin and it must be punished. Of course, for those who harden their necks, against this word of the Lord. For those who despise the word of God, it ultimately terminates in their destruction. God in his long suffering will ultimately destroy the unrepentant and the unbelieving in eternal judgment and torment. But even for the true believer, do we not also need this correction from the hand of a loving father? Tracing what it is he would teach us 
The Lord loves us too much, you see, if we are truly the people of God in order to abandon us in our sin, that we would live carelessly and without his without his blessing upon us. No, he would bring us to the place where we see that we are capable of making us ourselves so miserable as we depart from the ways of God. Search your own heart. Search your own recollection of how you've lived this past week and this last month, knowing that the Lord sees all and know all. And I ask you, are things well with you and the Lord. Yes, we all sin in everything, but here's the question. Is it the case that you are growing in grace? Is it the case that you are becoming more fervent for the ways of God? Is sin becoming more detestable to you? Are you finding that your remaining sin grieves you more or less? Is it the case that the Lord is sending things in your life, whether hard providences or whether a removal of his presence and blessing in order to wake you up, in order that you would seek him as in days of old or maybe even for the very first time, the need of the outcast? But let's also consider the remedy for There's obviously a most precious promise contained here. For I will restore health unto thee, and I will heal thee of thy wounds, saith the Lord, because they called thee an outcast, saying, This is Zion, whom no man seeketh after. We have not only the need, but the remedy contained here for Zion, the people of God. The Lord has indeed chastened his people through these judgments. He has brought terrors and afflictions. He has brought sorrows and pains, but they all are calculated unto this, to bring his love and grace unto them. Striking that it appears that even the taunts of the enemies and the adversaries of the church speaking for the devil himself, we could say, that this is someone who no one seeks after. This one surely is despised of God. This one is without hope, the devil would say, over your life. And God says unto you, sinner, it need not be so. Indeed, he is a God of salvation, of hope, and of healing. I will restore health unto thee, and I will heal thee of thy wounds, saith the Lord. Where God speaks, it is so. His intentions towards his undeserving, rebellious people are those of grace and peace. And so, even where these... uh, Enemy nations had risen up, a Babylon, an Assyria, and so on, in order to punish and afflict his people. Yet the Lord says that they will all be destroyed in order to vindicate the name of God and the cause of redeeming his people. Verse 16, Therefore all they that devour thee shall be devoured, and all thine adversaries, every one of them, 
shall go into captivity, and they that spoil thee shall be for a spoil. And all that prey upon thee will I give for a prey. This past week I was in New Brunswick and had occasion to go out with an evangelist, and we were sharing the gospel with people outside the city market, not bothering anyone, but simply handing out the gospel tracts. And at a certain point, a man who was dressed as a woman, one of the employees of that market, took great exception to the fact that there were people speaking about the Lord and sharing tracts. And so it was that uh, she, uh, this individual, this man, sought to cause problems and to call the police in order that we would go away. And we complied with that, moved along after, um, after talking with the police for a, a time, and just reflecting upon that experience and talking with my, my brother there who's an evangelist working in that area, we reflected upon how it was that anything else could be tolerated. Even someone living in such abominable sin could be celebrated and welcomed, and yet it's the word of God that is despised, and it's those who seek to live for God that have no place in the public increasingly. What you see is that there are things that would threaten to drive the people of God into despair and make us seem, make it seem as though we will forever be without vindication. But take these words that God says unto his poor people, yes, living under the smiting hand of his judgments and chastisements, but yet saying that this is not going to be the last word. God will vindicate his name. We are tempted to be filled with rage and anger at those who despise us for the cause of the Lord. We ought to remember that God is just and God will vindicate his own. uh, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. It's no small mart of the blessings promised here. But centrally, as you look through it, it occupies um, an important Uh, Sorry, this occupies an important part of these blessings of the remedy, that is the restoration unto the land. And so that's prominent in the first part of the uh, chapter, for example, in verse 3. For lo, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel and Judah, saith the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. And then uh, at verses 18 and 19, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will bring again the captivity of Jacob's tents and have mercy on his dwelling places, and the city shall be builded upon her own heap, and the palaces shall remain after the manner thereof, and out of them shall proceed the thanksgiving and the voice of them that make merry. And I will multiply them, and that they shall not be few." I will also glorify them, and they shall not be small. Their children also shall be as of aforetime, and their congregation shall be established before me, and I will punish all that oppress them. So you have the returning unto the land. You have the building up of the worship of God again, and the bringing in of the, the people back to their possession of course, fulfilled in part in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, and also we could say fulfilled under the new covenant 
as you see a gathering in of all nations unto the blessings of the new covenant. You see, if you would trace through these prophecies, especially chapters 30, 31, 32, 33, what you're going to find again and again is that there are promises that are fulfilled under the new covenant that have a spiritual significance that are used using the pictures and figures of the old covenant. Let me give you an example. Look at verse 9 there. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. Well, should we, how should we interpret that? Children, you know that David was a great king. He was someone who slew Goliath. You know that he was a man after God's own heart. But David, you see, was dead many years before Jeremiah preached. So how is it that we can speak of people serving David, their king? Well, you see, what is spoken of here is God raising up the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's Christ here spoken of only using the Old Testament figure of his father, David. And just think of what it's spoken of there. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. Isn't that the greatest blessing of all? Isn't that really what all of the promises of the land and all of the figures of the the land flowing with milk and honey and so forth, they have this as their ultimate uh, fulfillment, which is a people serving God with all of their hearts and receiving the blessings of dominion and glory upon the earth, both in this life and in the world to come, in the new heavens, in the new earth, in this life in the way of grace, in the world to come, in the way of glory. But these are the promises that are given unto the people of God under the new covenant. A glorious restoration as nations are gathered together into the bosom of the new covenant church, that heavenly Zion in which the Lord Jesus Christ sits enthroned in glory and majesty through his word and spirit. These are the things that are promised here. Glory and blessing through and in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's ultimately through the mediator and through the Savior that there is the healing balm applied unto the sin-sick soul. Unto the one who has sinned away grace and sinned away every opportunity, incurring countless chastisements, countless wounds upon their soul. It is only such a one that can apply unto that great physician, one who knows their need for him. The Lord came not for those who are well, but for those who are sick and know themselves to be sick and in need of a physician. Listen to how the coming of Christ to bless his people is spoken of here. Verse 21, And their nobles shall be of themselves, and their governor shall proceed from the midst of them. So the one formerly referred to as David, their king, is now referred to as their governor. He shall proceed from the midst of them, and I will cause him to draw near. And he shall approach unto me, for who is this 
that engage his heart upon me, saith the Lord. That's what the people had said. There's no man that seeks after this people. No man that desires this outcast people. But here is the Christ. Here is the governor. Here is the mighty king and savior. He draws near unto God as a mediator. In order to please the, plead the cause of the people. His heart engaged unto God in order to receive blessings unto his people. It is, not a, is it not a comfort unto you, Christian? That even where your prayers are so weak that in themselves you wonder if they could even rise higher than the ceiling. Yet there is one whose prayers are always heard, who intercedes not only with a perfect heart, but also on the basis of his own shed blood, upon which he purchased for you both grace and blessing and glory. He goes before God and says, this is my people. Indeed, look at the verse right after, in verse 22, And ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. Grace and blessing flowing from God as he claims a people unto himself in Jesus Christ, the heart of the covenant of grace. Here is the remedy. We need this remedy, congregation, every one of us. There's no substitute for the sin-sick soul, not any substitute for the one who is tried and burdened with the trials of life, only coming unto God as a loving Father in Jesus Christ, pleading the promises of the covenant of grace. Only this one can hope to have that healing. He says, I will restore health unto thee, and I will heal thy wounds, saith the Lord. Do not seek to patch up your own problems, to atone for your own sins. Go unto God. He is the one who speaks these words. Last and finally, the health of Zion. The health of Zion. Well, we've spoken of this, that... There is this astonishing restoration that the Lord promises here, undeserved and unearned destruction of enemies. There is the reconciliation unto God through Christ. There is the building up of the congregation in the blessings of the new covenant. And the question is, how is your health? If we were to do a health check today, And I would ask you, is it well with your soul? Do you feel the Lord's blessing and healing upon you? Do you feel that even in the midst of affliction, in the midst of incurring much chastisement, that the Lord is at work in your life? Go unto him today, my friend. Go unto God in Christ. He can give you that true health that is found in these verses. As we know that the outward man perishes away, it fades away, but the inner man is renewed day by day, but from strength unto strength and grace unto grace. If we would truly have any care for our own soul, we must engage ourselves with God. Do not put these things off, my friend. Do not put off unfinished business that you know you must bring before him. 
He can heal you. He delights to heal. He delights to save. He delights to bring you into the fellowship of himself and where the, the church has this perspective on both God's purposes of salvation and his loving heart to redeem, then we 